0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode 21 of Empires and Mercenaries, part one. Today, we blow the lid off our Northern Europe-centric storyline of the Middle Ages. Yes, to an extent, we follow Tancred de hautvilles children southward into the Italian peninsula and see the first sparks of Norman dominance in the region. But it's so much more than this. I said we would head to Italy, and we will. But we'll, you know, just take the route that many of those Norman pilgrims would take to get to Italy. They'd head through Constantinople first. See, their capital, Constantinople, now Istanbul, Turkey, the seat of empirical power, though still an incredible presence in the medieval world was in decline, and their increasingly feckless emperors decided to act upon a long-held idea of reunification with Rome itself, a place they all still held dear and seat of the most powerful bishop in all of Christendom, the Pope. Though according to their Eastern or Greek flavor of Christianity, Rome's bishop was merely the first among equals. Today we see how one legend begins, how the most powerful empire in the region can shoot itself in the foot, and how medieval loyalty was defined. Today we talk empires and mercenaries. I hope you enjoy the show. many different angles to tell this story from, to be quite honest. And I'm not exactly sure which one is the best one to choose for the sake of entertainment. I mean, every angle is a great angle, because every angle has some level of political intrigue or chicanery or action. We're going to get into essentially how the Eastern Roman Empire started a war of conquest against the Muslims, whom they called Saracens, but accidentally propped up an even worse opponent for themselves in the long run. Listen, politics aside, there's an uncanny resemblance between what the Byzantines did in the 11th century and American policy in the Middle East over the last several decades. When nations and empires utilize current local animosities to their benefit, when they prop up one side to subdue... What inherently happens is the creation of an empowered and legitimized group of people who, in turn, simply don't share the same aims. In fact, many times their aims are in direct opposition to the aims of the larger nation or empire. So, do you tell the story from the Americans? Or do you tell the story from the enabled and legitimized group? Or do you do you tell the story from the victims or losers of the conflict, from, from the ones who were subdued in the end. You see the dilemma. Historians have wrestled with this one for a long time, but as we know historically, it's, it's been the ultimate winners who control the narrative. Unfortunately, we have multiple winners, so to speak, here. It comes down to preference here, I suppose. So, do I want to tell this story from the perspective of the Eastern Roman Empire? The Normans? The Muslims? How about from the local Lombards who held such strong sway in Mezzogiorno? Or those living with, within the theocratic papal states, which include central and northern Italy? Unfortunately, I'm not that simple. I mean, in terms of stories, I'm kind of a tough customer. I enjoy depth and context. Everything has context. Context matters. History isn't as simple as these people won this battle against these people in this year. What fed into history's events, even those of lesser significance? What I'm trying to say here is that I don't know the right answer as to to how to tell this particular part of the story. But what I do know is that every part is worth telling. Again, history's ours, collectively. The goods and the bads. So if we jump around part of me wants to apologize. But the other part says, no, understanding the world means understanding the world. So I may not know exactly how I'll explicitly tell this story, but what I do know is that I'll, it'll be expansive, educational, and entertaining. And I choose to start this, this story in Anatolia, which is in central Turkey, Though in 1035, it was part of a fracturing Eastern Roman Empire. There was a small town there in Anatolia, by all accounts, one of very little significance, but it was also on the front lines of raids from an increasingly intrusive Abbasid Caliphate, the regional Muslim superpower who had their eyes on the wondrous city of Constantinople. It was no secret to Constantinople's greatness, it rested on the Bosphorus a very narrow seaway connecting the Mediterranean world to the world of Inner Asia, those lands that led to mythical China. Constantinople sat astride this seaway and had complete control of the major entranceway between the two very different worlds, the culturally and religiously diverse Middle East, India and Asia proper, and uh, the, for all intents and purposes, religiously uniform, yet still culturally diverse, Europe. See, this little Anatolian town was, the wild, was in the Wild West regions, who suffered from Saracen conquest toward their ultimate goal, which was what any civilization's goal was, and still is today, actually, control over the safety and the prosperity of itself. If it hasn't been made abundantly clear by now, I'll just come out with it. Constantinople was this goal, even for Europeans, as we'll soon see. See, there was a leader in this town, this little tiny town in Anatolia. A highly charismatic man, who is said to have had towered like an like an Old Testament giant over his townspeople. He had a raging temper and could pop at any given moment, but he was also borderline brilliant. His wit and his cleverness was very attractive for women and for nobility in Constantinople. He caught the emperor's attention in 1032 after a clever little play on his opponent's customs. See, another Saracen attack was imminent. They waited outside the gates and sent an envoy to order the town to lay down their arms and surrender. The term seemed peaceful enough. This man agreed with the envoy, and, and to show his goodwill, this man... As an assurance of his intention to surrender the town the next day, he sent the envoy back loaded with food and alcohol and other provisions as a token of this goodwill. Muslims strictly forbade alcohol, but it's not secret that many groups throughout history have been known to sneak a sip in here and there, and this is one of those moments in which it led to catastrophe. In a culture where alcohol is outlawed, the tolerance level for any random individual in that society would probably be next to nothing. Before they knew it, the Muslims were passed out drunk. All night, this town's leader gathered fighters and weapons. He trained those who needed a quick crash course in warfare, and he pumped his militia up to a boiling point. So when day broke, he led these men into the Saracen camp and slaughtered every last one of them. Before he knew it, he was the talk of the Eastern Roman Empire. His name was George Maniakes. As mentioned, the Eastern Roman Empire was in a bit of a decline, and it's worth explaining why, because it'll set the stage for the rise of Maniakes further, as well as explain other things that will become apparent as the story unfolds. To make a long story just a tad shorter, The great Basil II had died just 10 years earlier, in 1025, about the time that Canute was consolidating his power around the North Sea, entering into a pact of friendship with the German King Conrad II and gearing up for a pilgrimage to Rome to watch his new German friend be coronated as Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Hey, it's good to keep everything in sync as we go. There's a lot of balls in the air right now. See, Basil II was a god among men in many regards. He was a quiet leader who never let his men see his burdens, never shared the emotional baggage that comes with a life spent in the field of battle, and a man wholly dedicated to the success and prosperity of the people he ruled. That said, he also earned the nickname Basil the Bulgar Slayer, which on the surface is pretty awesome, but it also details the complexity of what constitutes a good man or a good ruler. Can a good man also be a good ruler? It's certainly a relevant question, even today, but, but what we do know for sure is that his people loved and appreciated him for whatever he was doing out in the field. He was born into a world where the Bulgar Empire had Constantinople nearly on its knees, and as a young man he fought against his empire's nemesis. As a general... He defeated the Bulgars and they rose again. And as an emperor, he did not stop until he all but destroyed the Bulgarian Empire and neutralized forevermore its grip on, on, on Constantinople. Because of Basil II, the Eastern Roman Empire once again prospered. He was its savior without question. As he won battle after battle in the hills and mountains of Bulgaria, year after year after year, his people had a tiny little renaissance happening. Constantinople was the undisputed Christian protector, its emperor, the figurehead, something the pope wasn't too keen on, by the way. While Europe was more and more becoming a feudal state in and of itself, where peasants had next to no chance of escaping debilitating poverty and debt, the Eastern Roman Empire was thriving. There was only an ancient specter of famine, as the farms grew into lush plantations. Communication sped up, linking the farthest frontiers of the empire together, and quote-unquote new money created new nobility. As Lars Brownworth states in his book Lost to the West, "'Men flush with excitement of new fortunes "'seemed to be everywhere, "'carried about in their sedan chairs, "'endowing lavish public buildings, "'and playing polo on the broad public avenues.'" Confidence was in the air and it was contagious. The addition of the Bulgarians, the Serbs, and the Russians to the cultural mix had added layers of diversity, but society and the church had never been more unified. Iconoclasm, the last great heresy to afflict the Byzantine church, had been settled for nearly two centuries, and the church and the state were infused with the spirit of cooperation. Education, once again, became a way for, for ambitious young men to advance, and vast libraries became a status symbol. End quote. And if I could just indulge a bit further from Brown, Brownworth's book, I just feel like he describes the explosion of prosperity in Constantinople better than, than I could. He continues, quote, There had always been a guarded respect for the pagan classics of antiquity, But with paganism long dead and no longer a threat, there was a new appreciation of the secular classics. A spirit of humanism swept through the empire, and scholars began to consciously emulate the styles of antiquity. Copies of the literature of ancient Greece and Rome became highly valued, and clergy and laymen alike began to dutifully reproduce the dazzling masterpieces. This was among the finest gifts that the empire bequeathed to posterity. Since Egypt, and the source of papyrus, had long been lost to the empire, the crumbling old manuscripts were copied onto more durable and ready-available parchment. This, in turn, enabled the literature to survive. Despite the general destruction that followed the collapse of the empire, most of the Greek classics that are extant today come down to us through Byzantine copies of this period." So further down, though, just one more thing I want to add. (laughs) Brownworth just, he just says it perfectly. So further down, Brownworth writes, quote, By the time of Basil II's death, Constantinople was home to brilliant poets, jurists, and historians, a glittering collection of literati that wouldn't be equaled in the West until the last days of the Renaissance. End quote. Yeah, so if you haven't checked out Brownworth's books, they're absolute musts, in my opinion. But as the Empire crept away from the Golden Age of the Bulgar Slayer's reign, under the leadership of Basil's brother, Constantine Eighth, it would slip into unbridled degradation. Yeah, so Constantine Eighth, after so many years in a semi-co-rulership with his big brother Basil, Honestly couldn't give a rip about leading an empire. During his reign, what has been described as, quote, an unmitigated disaster, uh, the military sank to an all-time low in effectiveness and just sheer numbers. The nobility became audaciously emboldened, and peace and tolerance of diversity around the empire began to decay. Now, not to demonize the guy too much, he'd spent over 60 years as co-emperor, fully accepting his brother's senior role in the empire. He fully enjoyed his status and his unique opportunity to be at the top of society without the statecraft needed to stay there. He knew what he knew, and anyone thrust into the position at the age of 63 would probably act the same. He'd been known as a gentle giant of sorts. He was very athletic and charismatic, but again, you know, running the nuances of the empire was the last thing on his mind. Riding, partying, reading, hunting, these were the ways he spent his entire life while happily napping in the shadow cast by his monumentally powerful and beloved brother. When Basil died, Constantine VIII did as he always had known. He oversaw the initial green light for decay to begin in the Eastern Roman Empire. His very short reign, just shy of three years, had such an impact on the future of Constantinople that his reign is often pointed to as the beginning of the end for the Eastern Empire. I mean, that's quite the accusation, considering the empire would go on for about 400 more years. So before Constantine VIII's death in 1028, just as Pope John XIV was crowning Conrad II as Holy Roman Empire in front of Canute II back in Rome, remember? Constantine married off his daughter Zoe, a man who would become the nominal emperor. I say nominal because, well, Zoe was really the driving force behind the empire for the next 15 years or so, uh, with a couple blips here and there on the radar. This man's name almost doesn't matter. Romanus III, for the record. And he would die just six years later, but what happened during this six years would echo down the ages. See, Romanus III was a scholar and a nobleman, this guy idolized Marcus Aurelius, the the Stoic emperor of Rome, many many centuries earlier, and molded himself in the form of the the next great philosopher king. But the marks he left on Constantinople showed he was anything but. Being from the aristocracy, he knew full well the limits that Basil II had placed upon them in terms of the control and influence they can have over the lower classes, and he thought by loosening up everything, he would he would usher in another golden age, maybe maybe make up for any damage the last three years had produced. Well, This, of course, backfired. The aristocracy, already emboldened, began to run amok. Land laws loosened to the point of being virtually unenforceable, and peasants all over the empire just had their lands seized and their property and livelihoods stolen right out from under them. They would no path of, of redress of grievances leaving them stranded, with nothing uh, quite literally nothing in addition to this he implemented he implemented this tried and true avenue of countering a pow- powerful aristocracy flushed with newfound power and wealth by devaluing the currency as a way to pay for the for the normal maintenance of an empire well next thing he knew Romanus was staring down the barrel of bankruptcy and a massive economic collapse you know there was a reason why the empire Empire hadn't devalued their currency one single time in over 600 years. And let's be honest, you don't need a PhD to wrap your head around the idea that when you devalue your currency, you're essentially saying that those who hold this currency shouldn't be so trustworthy of its real value. Okay, so here's an example. Like, I like bourbon, okay? So so let's look at it like this. A shot of bourbon is as potent as that particular drink will get, right? Though smooth, it's a punch to the gut and just, for me at least, too much all at once. There's there's too much return on it, so to speak. You know, there there needs to be a balance. It's said that if you add a large ice cube or a few drops of water to your bourbon, its flavor is actually enhanced, right? There's a balance there. The bourbon, for the sake of this example, is the marketplace, while the water is the currency, by the way, just to be clear, the marketplace is the environment in which people define value of items and services essentially by their level of need or want. You know, what are they willing to, to, to sacrifice to get whatever it is they're they're wanting there, they're shopping for. So each market is different, mind you, as each market comprises of different people. If one market adds 2 drops of water while another adds 20, you can see that the market with 2 drops Values their currency far more than the other market. The market with twenty drops added too much currency. This devaluing its thus devaluing its value, just as too many drops of water dilutes the taste of the bourbon too far. Now, if Romanus had only known about diluting his bourbon, he may have been remembered in a far brighter light. But you know. Romanus flushed with the flushed the market full of more currency thinking that more coins in circulation will create the necessary funds to keep his empire afloat basic economics right so to make matters worse while Romanus was accidentally ushering in a John Maynard Keynes type of utopia i say utopia in quotations his fellow aristocrats were creating the type of cronyism that buries nations throughout history, that uh, that good for me not for thee idea we even see in today's world. See, they passed laws that made aristocratic-owned land completely tax-free, while peasants were forced to make up the difference. Might sound familiar to some of us. Farms collapsed under the weight of a massive tax burden. Once-prosperous plantations were usurped by wealthier elites, who then turned around and made feudalistic deals with the evicted former owners, to then tend the very farms they just lost, earned and and they earned far less and still shouldered that just that heavy tax burden. This, as you know, is hardly sustainable. Couple all of this with Romanus's main purpose for inflating his currency, which was to to pay Basil II's immensely powerful military force to continue to protect Byzantine borders, let alone other infrastructure projects. See, in the Eastern Roman Empire, the military was made up predominantly of peasant soldiers, men who tended the fields and then went to war when needed, only to return to tend the fields afterward. Sometimes, say, an Anatolian Roman would, would, be called, uh, would be called upon to travel the breadth of the empire and defend a northern border, for instance, but they were mainly used locally, as, were, as, as you were far more likely to fight harder near home than somewhere far away. However, these peasant soldiers no longer had a home to gain wealth from or even value from. And now the money that they were paid while serving their empire was worth next to nothing in the marketplace. Well, they were forced to find new ways of making a buck. So the results of one emperor's apathy and another emperor's horrendous economic policies, of course veiled in good intentions as they usually are, were nothing short of apocalyptic. Tenant farming created something j- just this side of slavery And the military shrank to dangerously low levels due to mass desertions. Food chains utterly collapsed. Torrents of trade decreased to trickles. Widespread famine. The aristocracy became completely uncontrollable. It was, in fact, an epic catastrophe. And there in the middle of it all was that leader of that town in Anatolia we started here with, who had outsmarted the invading Muslim force outside of his walls, well after doing this this guy this this George Meniakis with his newfound notoriety he began looking beyond his immediate surroundings too he was a celebrity now celebrities do what they want right well i mean only if you let them and the people of Anatolia they let him apparently after a botched attempt by Romanus to capture Antioch even though they had Already agreed to a peace deal with Antioch and, and partial vassalage to Constantinople as well, George Maniakis led forces to Muslim held Edessa to the southeast, which fell to him in 1031, all but cementing his place in the Byzantine power structure. However, Romanus, licking his wounds from the embarrassing defeat, decided to root Maniakis in a governorship way out east. You know, get that, get that possible threat uh, still working but far away. The region Romanus sent Maniakes to was a region on the frontier that needed a heavy hand to control due to its proximity to the empirical center, and Maniakes took the role with gusto, reminding me of Canute, sending Thorkell the Tall out east to quell the rebellious East Angles, or East Anglian, excuse me, some 15 years earlier. Meanwhile, back home in Constantinople, Romanus was also battling for his place on the throne against two fronts. Those who meant to undermine him through his sister, Theodora, and those who meant to undermine him through his wife, Zoe. Oh, wait, let, let me clarify that, that second one real quick. Um, let me, how should I put it? Those who meant to undermine him through his wife, who was his wife, Zoe, right? Uh, yeah, they didn't exactly have the best, healthiest relationship. The straw that broke the camel's back was when he pulled her ability to spend money, Uh, They stayed married, of course, but while he found a mistress, she also found someone. This someone's name was Michael, brother of the highly influential eunuch named John the Orphanotrophos. if I said that correctly. Within months, Zoe had Romanus murdered, either by poison or drowning him in the bathtub. No one's quite sure, but they found him in a bathtub, they know that. And on the exact same day Romanus died... Zoe married her lover, Michael. The next day, Michael was crowned Emperor Michael IV. The son of a peasant, Michael had an interesting story to tell for sure, clawing his way to the top by becoming a master at currency trading, and some would claim to this day counterfeiting as well. Michael was exceptionally handsome and had a way with words, which is partly how he climbed high enough to be noticed by Empress Zoe. So an outsider takes the reins But if you're looking for an end to the corruption allowed under Romanus, well, I hate to disappoint you. But for the realists in our audience, you already know how this is going to play out. Michael was known as a pretty kind and charitable fella, but with with all that's happened, he increasingly became paranoid, especially since running an empire was completely out of his wheelhouse. And while Zoe was concerned that Michael would cheat on her, Michael was afraid of something else entirely. Zoe killed her last husband. I mean, most likely. What's to say she won't do the same to him, right? Michael, using all the might of the Emperor, locked Zoe away in the gynaecium, or women's wing of the palace, and refused to let her out. He had her surveilled at all times, and those coming and going were monitored very closely. He excluded her from all the goings on of the Empire, which Given Zoe's high status in Constantinople as empress for a decade, as well as being the daughter of one emperor and the niece of the great Basil II, well, he wasn't gaining many friends by doing this. As we learned already, Michael's brother John was already a high ranking inside aristocrat, so he pretty much let John take the lead on running the emperor. Uh, on, on running the empire, excuse me. So, Michael, under the direction of his brother, John, decided to make a bold statement in order to define his place in the empire as one who can once again unify and bring glory to Constantinople. It's time to reunite the ancient territories of Rome itself. Constantinople, now the new Rome for a new age, can once again join its cultural and empirical ancestors and create a new empire, one to usher in a new era of Pax Romana, to become the beacon of the world's trade, academia, and culture. With Islam controlling the entire southern Mediterranean, half, half of the Iberian Peninsula, the Holy Land, and now making periodic raids into not only Anatolia, Anatolia, but also Italy itself, Well, a blow must be dealt to the Saracens first and foremost, before those within the fold of Christendom can be coaxed toward unity. An attainable goal for Constantinople that would send a clear message to not only the Muslim caliphates, but Rome as well, would be to reclaim Sicily. Yes, it was time Sicily returned to the welcoming arms of the Roman Empire. But under the circumstances, the the military would need some help. When George Maniakis arrived in Apulia, most likely by way of the strategic port city of Zara on the Croatian coast across the Adriatic Sea, he entered a fractured political landscape defined by millennia of internal quarrels and external invasions. In the north, Germans called Lombards held lands south of the Alps for centuries at this point, and they weren't exactly the friendliest, since before Charlemagne, some 250 years earlier, they had the run of the the peninsula, and after Charlemagne, they were reduced to a sad vassal state of the Holy Roman Empire. It's worth noting that tucked into the coast of Lombardy was a maritime power in the making called Genoa. More on them down the timeline, I'm sure. To the east of the kingdom of Lombard Lombardy was the fair Verona, however. This is not the land where we lay our scene. At least not this scene, not yet. Verona surrounded Venice, a growing maritime trading empire that already held eastern coastlines of the Adriatic as far south as Greece, Venice was also experimenting with this crazy idea of self-governorship, called a Republic, based on ancient Athenian political philosophy. It seemed to be working, however, let's not kid ourselves here, it was still most likely oligarchic rule at the end of the day. And what can be described as the thigh of Italy were three disparate regions, the Marquisat of Tuscany, the Papal States stretching from Ravenna in the northeast to Rome in the southwest, and the Duchy of Spoleto. From the knee down, it began to really break down, if you can believe it, and this is where most of the action would would be during our current narrative. South of Rome were the Lombard-controlled principalities of Capua, Benevento, and Salerno. The city-states of Naples and Amalfi were tucked in there too, but but they enjoyed Byzantine protection at the end of the day. The heel, Apulia, and the toe, Calabria, were also controlled by Constantinople. However, the common person was in large part both Lombard and descendants of the mighty Romans. And finally, there was Sicily, the large, fertile island off the toe of the boot. This was a chaotic place. If Menaiakes had any hope whatsoever of gaining a foothold in Sicily, he simply couldn't rely on the locals. they had already been cowed for almost a century of near-steady raids by Saracens, And while the Lombards were too busy fighting on two fronts, the Papal States in the north and the Eastern Roman Empire in the south, both of whom just wanted the pesky Lombards to shut up already, you know, Maniaki's would have his work cut out for him if this mission was to work. He sent word out about an interesting business opportunity for anyone willing to die, really. Before he knew it, he had Lombard and Italian sellswords along with his 1000 strong force already. But there was another presence on the peninsula who answered the call too. See, some of this will sound familiar to you, but it starts around the year 1017, about the time Tancred was expanding his family from, say, seven to more than ten. There was another family who had arrived in Italy. We talked about these stories before in the podcast, but I'd like to name them now as they will become more relevant at this point. These Normans, who are off on a pilgrimage, and stopped at a famous christian shrine to pay their respects to the archangel michael they were Rainulf drengo and his brothers osmond gilbert escalatin and rolf along with over 200 norman knights who accompanied them they were on their way back from the holy land possibly to make amends for why they found themselves in southern italy to begin with see Rainulf committed an unnamed violent crime probably murder to be honest and was exiled from Normandy by Duke Richard III uh, around 1015 or so. This is the point where our Normans of legend were approached by the Lombard leader Melis of Bari, asking his assistance in throwing off the imperial yoke of Constantinople. And as we know, they agreed, and though they were defeated at the 1018 Battle of Canai, a battle that dealt a devastating blow to the Drango boys when word of Gilbert's death reached them, the Drangos went went on to gain the attention of the leader of Salerno, who then asked them to help repel the Saracens from pestering their coastlines and villages. You see how these stories are kind of mixed up a little bit. They, of course, agreed, and the Muslim threat was quelled for a time. They then began branching out and taking gigs wherever they could find them, including everything from raiding and extorting local villages and churches, as well as safely escorting pilgrims to various Christian shrines around southern Italy. They slowly but surely began amassing wealth, but wealth was nothing compared to land. But here's the most interesting part. Speaking of land ownership, it wasn't the Hopevilles who got the first Norman foothold in Italy; it was Ranulf Drengo who has that distinction. See, after many years of switching back and forth, back and forth, back and f- back and forth some more, you know, between helping the Count of Capua, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry II. And the Duke of Naples, for for ultimate control of Capua, I mean, it was just a big mess. They were, in 1029, rewarded by the former Duke of Naples and new Count of Capua, Sergius IV, with their very own property, which, during this time, was, quite frankly, everything in terms of legitimacy in this area. The Drangos, the Normans, now had land in southern Italy. Again, it was the Drangos, not the Hopevilles. From this seat, Ranolf began plotting for more. At one point, Ranolf most likely had his sights set on returning home to Normandy, presenting a gift from his pilgrimage to Richard II, and asking to be readmitted to Norman society. However, I can't imagine a reality where he didn't completely cast off this dream and settle for his new dream, a formidable Norman presence in Italy, so close to... Well, everything. I mean, so close to Rome, so close to the busy and lucrative trade routes of the Mediterranean, so close to the crossroads of cultures, I mean, on and on. Reinolf was named Count of Aversa, just north of Naples and south of Rome itself. And he knew that if he was to succeed, the key was to keep everyone fighting. If one leader was too powerful, then success would be impossible. By switching loyalties, no one knew who would have the upper hand, and everyone would come knocking on his door. Normans were quickly becoming valuable allies, if only tenuously and temporarily. In the midst of all this, Maniaki's no doubt heard word of this little band of Normans who were so adept at fighting when he arrived in 1035 or 1036. Maniaki's most likely negotiated a deal and offered the same for any other Normans Reinolf could acquire. Reinolf no doubt sent word to his fellow Normans in Normandy, and these were the stories and the calls to action that drove William and Drogo de Hauteville southward. As Lars Brownworth writes in his book Normans, quote, even brash young knights like William de Hauteville must have found the army maniakis gathered in Sicily impressive, end quote. Thousands of Byzantines, a large group of fierce Bulgarians, Serbian mercenaries, even some Lombard and Italian sellswords joined the excitement. Men of all sizes, shades, and physiques speaking a number of languages were coming and going. William and his brother Drogo led their Norman knights through the camps. It must have been quite a sight for Normans who grew up in the rough-and-tumble Cotentin peninsula of Normandy. In comparison, Normandy was still an infant in the grand game of human civilization, just over a century old at this point. Traffic was heavy in the English Channel, with Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon and Muslim and Irish and French people stopping in and out for trade. But, But this, this was a truly ancient land with truly ancient people. It's people. These were ancient cultures here. Under the high Mediterranean sun, it's... Their skins held the millennia of sunlight in them. Their hands and their eyes held just as much history. I can't help but imagine even a moment of, well, you know, inadequacy in William and his Norman comrades. But then I remember, you know, hey, these are Normans. These are the direct ancestors of the warriors who fought alongside Rollo. So there's no record of William meeting with Maniaki's, However, I'd like to think it happened. You know, at least at some point. Maybe not at first. But either way, there's no possible way Maniacis wasn't impressed when he finally saw his Norman mercenaries in action. But at the same time, Williams and Drogo's first meeting was most likely with a fellow Norman. That same Count of Aversa. Reynolf Drengo. The Hauteville boys touring the camp no doubt caught glimpses of the legendary Varangian guard, the US Navy SEALs of their day. These these guys were the elite of the elite. They were mostly comprised of Scandinavian and Rus warriors who began to trickle into the Empire's ranks as early as the eight seventies, around the time the great heathen army was ravaging England and, and helping to create the legend that would surround King Alfred for all time. But in nine eighty eight Emperor Basil II, yes, that the Bulgar Slayer, married off his sister, to King Vladimir I of Kiev in a military treaty and in exchange Vladimir sent him over 6000 viking warriors Basil made them his personal guardsmen and no matter what as long as their emperor breathed they were loyal to him and him alone there was no question to this either however if the emperor fell which of course happened it would never be it would never be to a varangian sword and the guard would then immediately switch allegiances to the new emperor without question i suppose one could say this is the way they could be recognized on the battlefield or in camp by their light complexion freckles red hair mostly but not all of course a red jewel implanted in their earlobes and dragon designs set in their chainmail armor they were also distinguished or excuse me they were also distinguishable by their weapons Though a sword was always on their person, they were known to prefer the classic Viking battle axe, with which they were unbelievably lethal. These were the best of the best without question, led by a warrior in every sense of the word. The warrior leading them at this point was an exiled Norwegian nobleman who was forced to flee when he was young and to grow up in the rough Kievan Rus territory. But it was his sense of adventure and fearlessness that led him to Constantinople. His name was Harald Sigurdsson, and he would, at the age of 19, much like a young Olaf Tryggvason, find himself leading a band of Viking warriors. Only this time, he was in defense of the emperor of Eastern, of the Eastern Roman Empire. Harald, by this time, was already a legend throughout Europe and the Middle East, known for his unbelievable leadership and, and his ruthlessness in battle. In short, Harold did not lose like, like ever it seemed like. It was this gigantic force, as well as the few standing Byzantine soldiers and the large number of mercenaries, including William and the Normans, that Maniacchi set sail across the extremely narrow strait to Sicily, and set sail they did in 1038. First to fall was Messina, directly across the Strait of Messina, separating the tip of the toe of Italy with the island, Mount Etna looming large in the southwestern sky. Then Rometta, just north of the volcano, followed, and then followed by Troina to Etna's west. Manyakis was moving swiftly and mercilessly, and the Hauteville brothers were gathering wealth and fame as they went, as well as the Drangos and all the other sellswords around. Back in Constantinople, the people cheered and they idolized Maniakes. They celebrated his name and he began to gain status as a, as a living legend. Well, this never sets well with an emperor to have a general possess more popularity than him. Sicily was a foregone conclusion at this point. With George Maniakes at the helm, I mean, how could they possibly lose, right? People began putting their sights on the real prize now. Again, the unification of ancient Rome of all of Christendom. There was no higher goal, and George Maniakis was sure to deliver it to the people of Constantinople. I hope you enjoyed part one of this chapter of Empires and Mercenaries. Be sure to download next week's episode on part two, where we see the relationship of empires and mercenaries play out in its natural course. Please keep sharing this podcast with you, uh, with you and who you know, and on your social media accounts. By now, you know the drill, at Wheel Podcast on Twitter and Fortune's Wheel Podcast on Facebook. You can contact me at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. And if you believe in the aims of this podcast, please consider checking out our page on Patreon, a platform that allows listeners to directly support a podcast big things on the planning board right now, such as a website and bonus episodes and maybe down the road some merch, I'm excited about the growth we're going to see, and I have you to thank. So thank you. After Troina, though, Maniaki sits and he plans. He pretty much takes all of 1039 and a little bit into 1040 to gather his forces again sending out various raids across the island, you know, picking apart over a dozen Muslim strongholds and fortresses as they went, kind of nickel-and-diming his opponent into submission throughout, the, throughout northeastern Sicily. His sixes covered all the way back to the coast, so there really wasn't a rush at this point. Though the ultimate goal was to rid the Sicilian island of Saracens, the jewel to obtain was the extremely valuable and strategic port city of Palermo. But first there was just one more mission before Palermo. Saracen forces were utilizing a slightly less important port on the southeast coast of Sicily as a place to welcome more fighters and resources to continue the war against these Romans. The port was Syracuse. And Syracuse would be the birthplace of a legend, a man they would immediately, after the battle, would become known as Bras de Fer. It would be a place in which this Norman family surname would become the talk of the, around the tables of courts and homes around the medieval world. I can't wait to tell you about it.